and welcome to Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Remus Jackson. We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts. Um, my segment explores theoretical and historical analyses of our topic. And I talk about our topic through the lens of pedagogy and education, with a focus on practical application. I work with K-12 students in schools, in addition to alternative educational settings. My new graphic novel, The Breakaways, is out now from first second, and you can order it at thebreakawayscomic.com. I have a master's degree in art education. And I'm a PhD student in the University of Florida's English program. My research focuses on gender, critical prison studies, and museum studies. I also make self-published comics, mostly. So, we are going to be talking about grading this episode, episode 24. We are both in the throes of starting the new school year. So, we are thinking about grading. Yeah, this was... um, because we had a conversation a couple months ago, I think, where I was sort of complaining about rubrics, <laughs> and we had like a lovely chat about rubrics and how to use them effectively, um, which I think sort of led to this. Yeah, and hopefully this is going to be interesting for all listeners, because yeah. I mean, we've all been graded at some point in yeah. our life, um, probably for a long period of our life we've been graded mm-hmm. and i think it's useful to like sort of learn about where grading comes from why we do it what is specifically graded and like talk about its fairness honestly yeah. and then um i just wanted to throw out there that i have a tonsil infection so i'm a little bit sick and my throat might sound s- slushy but <laughs> We, we must continue forward because <laughs> okay. it is we're recording on Labor Day, which is like the only day that we have off because the school year is starting and it's a yeah. lot of work. So with a slushy throat, we continue forward. Uh, and I think, I mean, I can just sort of jump into it. I guess I was going to say also that I was interested yeah, in this. Yeah, go for it, Remus. <laughs> I was going to say also that I was interested in this because we both are instructors uh, in like different capacities. So I'm like excited to hear because I I teach at the university level and the way my program works is that like I don't assist professors like I am the sole instructor of record. I designed the course, etc. So like but I'm teaching like college students in like a general education English setting and you are doing like middle and high schoolers in art. So it's like a slightly different uh, perspective. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, art, one of those theoretically subjective grading situations. But yeah. um, as we'll probably talk about, almost all grading is subjective <laughs> as yeah, much yeah, yeah, as we'd yeah. like it to not be. Um, I'm going to start us off with this essay called um, On the Uses of Rubrics, Reframing the Great Rubric Debate by Eric D. Turley and Chris W. Gallagher. It's from 2008. Um, so uh, one of the like contemporary... Um, like in my research, what I noticed is that like a lot of contemporary, uh, writing on rubrics that's being published in like educational journals is about how to like move beyond rubrics basically. So I I just thought this is like a, this article is like good in that it like, uh, it's a little out of date now, right? It's like 11 years, but it, it, it sets up sort of like the history of like how this debate got started and like why people are still arguing about this. Mm, cool. So they start off saying, 
in the pages of English Journal and beyond. Uh, and English Journal is a, a, a educational journal for like people who teach English. Uh, and also, almost all of my sources come from the English Journal. So I guess that should tell you something about <laughs> the role of the English Journal in this debate. <laughs> in the pages of English Journal and beyond, the great rubric debate is on. Rubrics are sorting machines, or they are useful instructional tools. Rubrics lead to standardization, or they help us connect with individual students. Rubrics rest on false claims to subjectivity, or they make subjectivity visible. Rubrics put teachers and students on autopilots, or they enrich conversations between teachers and students. It is time to move beyond rubrics, or it is time to embrace them. The titles and subtitles of articles and books about rubrics are either dismissive or defensive. What we really value, beyond rubrics and teaching and assessing writing, rethinking rubrics and writing assessment, the trouble with rubrics in defense of rubrics, why I won't be using rubrics to respond to students' writing. <laughs> um, so I like that because it's just like a really good framing of the debate. Um, but th- what they go from there is they sort of point out that the common denominator across all these arguments is that rubrics are a tool. And so the debate is about how they're used. Um, can we even define yeah. rubric? Like what? what is it that we are talking right, right, right. about? So a rubric is... So did you have a definition or did you want me to? I don't have a definition. It's just usually a grid, right? Yeah, it's essentially a grid um, of like criteria that are used to evaluate an assignment, right? So there's usually like at the very least a satisfactory and an unsatisfactory column, although sometimes it's like a scale of one to five or like however it's done. Um, And it's just sort of like... Here's the cr- main criteria. Here's the bullet points of the thing the assignment should do. Does it do that? So it's a tool to grade. Right. So at the top, there's like satisfactory and unsatisfactory or something like that, or a larger scale. And then on the side, there are the various things that are being graded, mm-hmm. right? And then so in order to get a satisfactory, you kind of follow the grid and you are supposed to answer all the questions right or something like that, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's just basically a grid. Yeah. yeah. That tells you specifically what you need in order to do good on the assignment um, in theory. Yeah. And for a lot of colleges and universities, they're required to give that yeah. grid to students at the very beginning of class, how to get yeah. an A kind of thing that is not true for K through 12. You don't have to show your students how you are grading them at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and also I, I, at the university level, we often have different rubrics for different assignments. Um, so then they kind of give us a little bit of like the historical of like how rubrics even came to exist. So in November 1912, Ernest C. Noyes argued in English Journal that a new science of education based upon exact measurement and judgment by ascertained facts was needed in composition. So Noyes advocated for the standardized measurement of composition quote, what is wanted is a clear-cut, concrete standard of measurement, which will mean the same thing to all people in all places and is not dependent upon the opinion of any individual. Um, So the first sort of scale is what it was called, but sort of the first version of this, right, was called a scale for the measurement of quality in English composition by young people, or um, it's also called the Hilgus scale after, uh, I forget his first name, but Hilgus was the person who came up with it. So 
Um, mm-hmm. I have a quote from a from a school review, a 1913 school review um, article that uh, was sort of discussing it when it was first published by Franklin W. Johnson. So um, <laughs> I, I'm going to talk about this because I think the Hilga scale is like really buck wild, but you can see how we still kind of use it. So um, <laughs> the method employed in deriving the scale is given in detail in a recent number of the teacher's college record, uh, which I actually have. Um, some 7,000 compositions of young people were divided into 10 classes, each roughly representing the same degree of excellence. From these classes, 75 samples were selected. To these were added artificial samples of poorer quality than could be found in actual schoolwork in order to fill the lower ranges of the proposed scale. Altogether, the set consisted of 83 samples, which varied from the poorest to the best by small degrees of quality. About 100 individuals arrange these samples in the order of their excellence. From the judgment of these individuals, a smaller group of 27 samples was selected as containing all the important steps in quality from the poorest to the best. Two other samples were added as the investigation proceeded to fill gaps in the scale. 502 individuals judge these sets of samples on the ba- and on the basis of their judgments, the scale was derived by the method of right and wrong cases. The theory of this method as applied to the study is stated as follows. Differences that are equally often noticed are equal unless the differences are either always or never noticed. <laughs> so the scale, I have a link <laughs> to like an archive of the book that like, was published with the scale in it, which was published in 1912. Um, So the scale runs from zero to a hundred. And the way it worked was teachers would be given this book that had the samples in it. And what they would do is they would compare their students writing against the samples (laughs) and then use the samples to determine what the grade should be. So like this, and the thing about it is that like the scale doesn't run. It's not like it goes like, here's a zero, here's a 25, here's a 50. It's like kind of all over the place. (laughs) There's like a value zero. And then the next one is a value 183, which would be equivalent to 18.3. And then the next one is a value 20, 260, which would be 26. Uh, (laughs) And none of the samples, it's not like the same paragraph. It's like all different writing. Basically it's all different kinds of writing. Um, but yeah, as they would, and, and like the book is interesting because it's 75 pages or yeah, 75 pages roughly. And so they lay out the scale and then they sort of explain like, here's how we arrived at these judgments. Here's the, um, there's like a bunch of scales, uh, like, um, mathematical representations of like how the samples are like averaged. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, you can kind of see yeah. how, like, we still kind of use that zero to 100, right? Of, like, 100% is perfect, zero is completely yeah. off. It's th- the opposite. Like, <laughs> um, Yeah. I mean, I'm going to talk a lot about mm-hmm. that's, that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Turley and Gallagher talking about the scale note that it was adopted in many schools. Like I said, teachers compared writing to the samples on the scale to determine the grade. And it, quote, codified a belief that students' writings could be translated into into a number and quantified. They also note that it's important um, to note that these scales were not intended to improve student writing. So, like, the, the, the point of the Hilgas Thorndike scale and um, all this was, like, 
like to come up with an efficient quote objective way basically to quickly grade students writing not to offer like ways for them to get better mm-hmm. so they say early writing scales were constructed to provide an objective numerical measurement of student writing in order to allow comparisons among students teachers classes schools cities and so on the scales were created outside of the schools typically at universities and then implemented by the school administrators teachers and students had no hand in creating the scales and were not expected to use them to improve student writing the ideology that underwrote writing scales hinged on the managerial efficiency and positive science including the idea that technological precision would replace subjective human judgment so obviously this is all i feel like the context of what i'm talking about is very focused on like writing one because i didn't want to talk about art because i knew you're going to talk about art and two um because I, the, these more sort of subjective subject areas are the places where you see the most debate about like how to quantify and grade. Yeah, and you know, which my resources are going to draw that into question, where it's like there's so many things to grade other than right. whether something is right and wrong. But yeah, it, Remus is right in that uh, the the ones that get stuck up in the debate is these ones that are considered subjective so like english and arts are definitely but also it makes sense to talk about english um because that's where a lot of comics end up in, yes is english classes so yes true um yeah so the last thing i think i'm gonna pull i'm gonna say from this um Turley and gallagher article is that they link this sort of early uh implementation of scales to like the contemporary implementation of like statewide rubrics um which are also developed sort of by like outside of the classrooms and then sort of just implemented in the classrooms and teachers and students don't really get to like change them because of like state standards and and i'm going to talk a little bit about this but like this article was written during no child left like the era of no child left behind so that's probably what they're like responding to Mm. but they and so they sort of just talk about how like it's the rubrics function is sort of a, a classification device and they say um quote much of the time we don't need classification devices but in our high school and college classrooms, we also want to create writing communities in which we develop a shared vocabulary for talking about and rendering judgments about writing. This is important to us at grading time, to be sure, but also at less formal moments throughout our courses. So they offer sort of like a way that um, they sort of like contextualize this whole debate and then they sort of offer a way we can think about rubrics and a different like just like as a, a value neutral tool that we can like use to our purposes. Yeah. So I thought that was nice. Um, For a little more history, talking about sort of assessment more broadly, um, this is from a 2000 article called Assessment and Accountability by Robert Lynn that was published in Educational Researcher. The influential writings of James B. Conanti in the 1950s, e.g. 1953, provided a rationale for, quote, universal elementary education, comprehensive secondary education, and highly selective meritocratic higher education. Tests were seen as important tools to support the implementation of Conant's conceptualization of the education system, both for purposes of selecting students for higher education and for identifying students for gifted programs within comprehensive high schools. In Conant's view, comprehensive high schools should provide students with a common core, but should also have differentiated programs. Indeed, as Kremen, um, who is a person he's citing, has noted, Conant believes that the preservation of quality of education for the academically talented in comprehensive high schools was a, a central problem for American education. 
This vision of differentiated tracks within comprehensive high schools differs sharply from the current rhetoric of common high standards for all students. The current reality, however, is more congruent with the notion of differentiated tracks than it is with the current rhetoric. The difference between our rhetoric and the reality of differentiation in instructional offerings was highlighted a decade ago in the underachieving curriculum where results from the second international mathematics studies were used to assess U.S. school mathematics curricula and performance. The underachieving curriculum documented that four quite different types of mathematics classes, called remedial, typical, enriched, and algebra classes, were prevalent in the U.S. What was taught and what was learned varied dramatically as a function of class type. So again, this is a little older, but that's still true. There's still differentiations. There's the like remedial classes, the regular classes, and then like honors classes and AP. There's a lot of debate about AP classes right now, like whether AP classes in high school is even like a useful or good thing for high school students. Some high schools are getting rid of APs. Um, some have like fully embraced them. Um, but that is also something that's coming up for debate just now. Interesting. Lynn identifies sort of these like key four historical stages of accountability and how assessment was used as accountability, um, which this summary this like super short summary of that I'm pulling from a different article by Philip Nagy. Um, but this is only like three sentences that I'm pulling from him. So there was program, whether instructional intentions were realized in the 1960s, minimum competency, whether all students are reaching a minimum standard in the 1970s, school and district, how jurisdictions compare in the 1980s, and standards-based, whether students are meeting specific goals in the 1990s. Wait, what are you reading? What are you, what's this you're reading? This is the, that was just like a quick summary of that thing. You know that thing I just read from Robert Lynn about the history of teaching? Okay. The under so that was just a quick summary of his like four oh, like like the history of teaching what you're specifically grading okay yeah grading yeah and like how testing and like grading became an accountability practice right so um the, I think I'm going to talk a little bit about no child left behind now because that's like the most like what's impacting us still now basically today yeah so no child left behind was an act that ran from uh, 2002 to 2015, though obviously we're still sort of feeling the effects of it. Academia and teachers move slowly. So 2015 yes. was very recent. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, honestly, I didn't realize it had like stopped. I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I think it should be Common Core now that has replaced yeah. it. Yeah, I think so too. Um, no Child Left Behind was basically this big act educational reform pr uh, proposed by uh, President Bush the second is sort of expanding on a lot of the educational initiatives of President Bill Clinton's Goals 2000, um, which was Clinton's educational reform bill. I have a list of the components of No Child Left Behind um, from a article called No Child Left Behind, question mark, sociology ignored, exclamation mark, which I like. This is from 2005 and the articles by David Caron. So No Child Left Behind, the components were, one, requiring annual testing of students in grades three through eight in reading and math, plus at least one test in grades 10 through 12, science testing to follow. Graduation rates are used as secondary indicator of success for high schools. Two, 
requiring states and districts to report a school-by-school data on students' test performances broken down by whether the students are African-American, Latino, Native American, Asian-American, white, non-Hispanic, special education, limited English proficiency, or LEP, and or low income. Um, three, requiring states to set, quote, adequate yearly progress AYP goals for each school to meet AYP goals. Not only must each subgroup make progress in each year and each grade in each subject, but 95 percent of each subgroup must participate in testing. AYP goals must be constructed so that 100 percent of the students reach proficiency by 2014. Four, labeling schools that fail to meet AYP goals for two years, quote, in need of improvement, I-N-O-I. Initially, this requirement means that students must offer, that schools must offer students opportunities to attend other public schools and or to receive federally funded tutoring. Funds would also be provided for teachers' professional development. A school that failed to meet future AYP targets would then be subject to, quote, restructuring, firing of the teachers and the principal, the takeover of the school by the state or private company and so forth. And five, requiring schools to have, quote, highly qualified teachers for the core academic subjects, which were English, reading or language arts, math, science, foreign language, civics and governments, economics, arts, history and geography by 2005 or 06. So those standards make up the law, right, basically. And I think even just, it's like interesting to think about it just because I was Mm -hmm. in grade school during the implementation of this. Um, So it's just interesting, like, sort of think about it now. So um, I have a, just a really quick gloss on how did, uh, this is from Reauthorizing No Child Left Behind, a book by um, Brian M. Stetcher, Jorge uh, Vernez, and Paul Steinberg from 2010. Um, This chapter is, How Did States Implement the No Child Left Behind Provisions? I'm quoting, Content standards are a fundamental part of No Child Left Behind, as they were in the Improving America School Act, which was a 1994 act. But No Child Left Behind went one step further than the uh, IASA by requiring that states establish such standards, not just for reading and mathematics, but also for science. By 2006-2007, all states, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, had developed content standards in reading, mathematics, and science. Um, So, as discussed in Chapter 1, No Child Left Behind sets the goal of having all students reach proficiency in reading and mathematics by 2013-2014, but it allowed each state to define the level of student performance that is to be labeled proficient on its statewide assessments. Under No Child Left Behind, states are required to establish at least three academic achievement levels— basic, proficient, and advanced. However, as of 2003-2004, 42 states had opted to designate four or five achievement levels, with the additional levels usually, but not always, being set below the basic level. States determined achievement level cut scores through systematic judgmental processes, the most common of which is bookmarking that involved committees of psychometric experts, teachers, and administrators. And this is key, because each state establishes achievement standards relative to its own content standards and assessments, 
proficiency standards can and do vary from state to state. By 2006-2007, all states met the No Child Left Behind requirements for testing all students in grades 3 through 8. To comply um, with the testing requirements to determine how well students are performing, states have had to conduct substantial test development efforts. While 14 states were able to use their existing tests to meet the requirements, the majority developed or modified reading and mathematic tests specifically for No Child Left Behind. Um, 15 states indicated that they had developed all new assessments in reading and mathematics in 3 and 8, and 22 were able to retain some existing tests or modify existing tests. I wanted to highlight this section on students uh, with disabilities and English language learners. Um, Students with disabilities typically participate in proficiency assessments in one of two ways. Participation in the general assessment with or without accommodations or participation in an alternative assessment. In 2006-2007, all states, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, allowed testing accommodations to enable students with disabilities to take the regular state assessments. Also, all states had alternative assessment systems in place by 2005-2006 for these students. But federal peer review teams found that 38 states had problems associated with their alternative assessments. By uh, 06-07, all 50 states, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, had um, alternative assessments in place, I guess building on the, the problems with that although two were missing some of the required grades mm-hmm. states were also required to have tests for lep students so um low english proficiency um before no child left behind few states used assessments that were appropriate for measuring progress in acquiring english uh, elp which i believe is english language for proficiency yeah either that or english language program uh, proficiency makes sense i just made an assumption <laughs> We can assume about acquiring English, right? So it said, um, under No Child Left Behind, there has been progress over time in adopting subchests. Um, In 0405, implementation of ELP assessments was incomplete in over half the states, 27, but nearly all states had implemented ELP assessments by 0607. Almost half of states developed their ELP assessments in collaboration with a multi-state consortium. Um, Since No Child Left Behind, some observers have suggested that students are spending too much time taking tests. Our studies show that the amount of time the students spend taking No Child Left Behind required assessments and reading and mathematics average between four and six hours annually, depending on the grade level. The variation uh, reflects a lack of consensus among policymakers, test developers, and researchers about the ideal test length. So I wanted to read that because I think, like, the main thing to keep away from that is, like, that it was... It varied so wildly from state to state, but, like, that there was this big active restructuring going on. And there's a lot of Mm -hmm. writing about, like, how, especially I think the the focus on, like, um, the subgroups, so how they, like, made the testing be divided out by, like, different ethnic groups and also low income, like, impacted how testing was done and, like, what schools were mainly affected and things like that. So I think that's sort of the main takeaway, I guess, for my segment, right? It's just that, like, it's it's been sort of an ongoing one that, at least in terms of, like, how grading scales developed for English, it was about increasing – it was about, like – ostensibly about removing subjectivity, but mostly about increasing efficiency. There's a lot of like strong feelings about whether yeah. it works or not. <laughs> um, like whether we should be subject objective or subjective. Yeah. And I think there's some really good points about like the issues with like how students perceive very subjective and holistic grading systems. Um, but yeah, it's sort of like just a big long conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much Remus for, um, 
talking about the history of this. So what I'm going to do is my main resource uh, for the my section on education is the book On Your Mark, Challenging the Conventions of Grading and hmm. Reporting by Thomas R. Gusky. It was published in 2015. So it's going to also be coming off of that mm -hmm. No Child Left Behind era and sort of trying to move us towards the future. So a lot of grades, like how people grade, is based on tradition, right? Like, yeah. this is the way my teachers graded, so that's how I am going to grade. Yeah. So with all that we have learned about education over the past hundred years, why have grading and reporting continued essentially unchanged, right? So E was talking about something from studies from 1913, which I this book also talks about, and they're all the same, right? That's literally over a hundred years ago. So why are we kind of still stuck in the same type of grading? Right. So a lot of it is the fear it might disrupt traditions. Right. Um, so trying to change the percentage grading, the A through F grading, if you change that, you have to change so much, right? So much tradition and so much, so many people's mindsets. And also another thing that it might disrupt is that high grades are required for admission to selective colleges and universities, right? Mm -hmm. So colleges and mm -hmm. universities mm -hmm. can have a completely different grading system. But it's almost, it feels like it's really important for K through 12 grading to be very standardized so uh, all colleges can make an assumption when they are um, assessing who they are going to uh, allow to join them in their school, right? Because in K through 12 is you have to go, right? You are legally bound in the United States that you must go to school or you are a delinquent child, right? <laughs> um yeah. But then colleges and universities can choose. And so that selection process uh, sort of, I'm not going to say it needs grades, but we feel like it needs grades, right? Mm -hmm. And so grades are this huge part of decision-making procedures. It's a lot of how we make decisions about kids. So grades sort and select students. And I'm going to just say, it's the. so this is a quote from Gusky's book, but it's really, what I want to encourage you is that the, so grades are part of decision-making procedures, and I really want you to think about how the United States is under capitalism, right? That's how we make a lot of decisions yes. about people. So grades sort and select students. Students with innate talent, this is a quote, and ability receive higher grades. They continue on to school, go to college, and become leaders in professions, government, business, and industry. Or so we, this is mm -hmm. what we want to believe, right? This is not the book. This is Kathy. But really, a lot of it has to do with money, right? So like Remus was talking about, No Child Left Behind tries to somehow figure this out um, in terms of ethnicity, of uh, low-income status. There's a lot of recognition in at least radical thinkers and radical educators like me and Remus that you must recognize that uh, circumstances, uh, family circumstances, have a huge, 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 huge impact on the education and the future of children, right? We've talked about this a lot in Drawing a Dialogue. Mm -hmm. So uh, the belief is that grades are just a meritocracy of who is the most innately talented and they deserve to go to these leadership positions in a society. Um, and then the majority of students uh, receive more mediocre grades 
and they uh, le- only learn what is needed to gain meaningful employment and contribute to an industrial society. And so schools ranked students on the basis of their grades um, to make the selection process easier for uh, colleges mm-hmm. as well as potential employers. So if you get a good grade, you should go to college and become a doctor. And if you get poor grades, you should go be a car mechanic, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which is not how I feel, um, but that is how... <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, But that is how a lot of the tradition of grading comes from, right? However, uh, times have changed, and modern technology uh, makes many jobs obsolete. This is the book who says this. Um, Also, I hope we have learned to be more compassionate teachers, right? (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. So uh, instead, we educate students uh, for a continuously evolving information society that demands flexibility, creativity, and initiative, right? Instead of being right. concerned with selecting the talented few, we must be committed to developing the unique talents of all students, right? A yeah. wild thought that everyone deserves equality education. <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> really it's so radical it, like really from it sounds so obvious way us, out but there. like that is actually like legitimately a radical thought yeah no it really is <laughs> right so we are concerned we want all students to get a's right mm-hmm. but um that is a big big idea right there's like some schools i'm not really going to talk about bell curve grading so much but like there's some schools princeton only allows you to give 35 percent of the students a's but think about who's going to princeton they're probably all really high (laughs) achieving students right wouldn't you want everyone who goes to princeton to get a's but they only require 35 percent a's everyone else has to get something under that so there's just sort of this madness of comparing students right it's like grading is to rank and compare students, which um, I feel like, and this book feels, and I hope Remus feels this, and I hope all teachers feel this, is that you want your teaching to have every student become exemplary, right? You want every mm-hmm. student to understand what you're teaching them and to grow. Right. Instead of just uh, figuring out who is innately talented, uh, it's sort of, it's like a funny concept about how, well, if you're a teacher and you believe that, you're not giving yourself a lot of credit. <laughs> it's your yeah. job to help people learn. I don't, it's just strange. So the sort of the beginning steps to trying to change uh, grading, change these traditions and change mindsets on this tradition are... Uh, number one, what's the purpose of grades? Clarifying what the purpose of reporting and grading students is for. Two, align classrooms and school policies and practices with the purpose, right? So a sort of aligning, creating a purpose of why you're grading students, and then aligning every tier of that school education to uh, match that purpose, right? It's really important that we all agree on why we are educating students, right? Yes, yeah. And then three is research. Um, You want to ensure that any proposed change in grading and reporting procedures comes from research-based evidence 
of effective practice. And it's really funny to me how you need to emphasize research, as me and E also try to emphasize research in drawing a dialogue. Um, It's you need to, there's a lot of opinions out there and there's a lot of feelings. You feel like this is fair, but you're only, but you need to do research. You need to make sure that that's actually true. So it's really important that all changes are actually based on genuinely, genuine research. Right. So grading and reporting should always serve to enhance both teaching and learning and never stand as impediments to student success. Um, I feel like we can all agree on this. I hope we have moved past just ranking people by how quote unquote talented and or untalented they are, mm-hmm. um, that we want all students to have success. So what's the purpose? How do we start to define the purpose of grades? One, what is to be learned? Articulation of clear and rigorous goals or standards for student learning, right? So that is yeah. what E was talking about with No Child Left Behind, right? That is what we are moving towards with Common Core. What is the statewide? What are these standards and goals that we want students to learn in second grade English, in 10th grade English? What do we want them to learn? And this can also be true in any small classroom. You don't necessarily have to stick with uh, a nationwide standards. You can come up with your own goals, right? What do you Mm -hmm. want students to learn in your classroom? So to continue how to define the purpose of grades, two, evidence and assessment. Once standards are specified, once goals are specified, how do you gather evidence on student learning through various assessments and procedures? What evidence best reflects student achievement of established learning goals or standards? How can it be gathered and mm-hmm. then summarized to facilitate teaching and learning? So what are you grading? What are you assessing? Right. Just the tests? Are you going to grade uh, attendance? Are you going to grade attitude? There's so many things that you can grade. I'm going to go into this a little bit more, but what are you choosing to grade? Because you feel like that actually reflects the goals, right? right? Where is the evidence? And then three, grading and reporting, right? How do you communicate these results to students, parents, other people? Who are you communicating the grades to? And what's the best way to communicate that? Um, just getting telling a student that they got a B on an assessment without sort of def- definitions of what the B means um, really is not helpful, right. right? So how can you communicate your grade and reporting in a helpful way? So I'm going to read page 13. You must consider the purpose of the report card. Mm-hmm. So this is more K through 12. Um, I guess there's transcripts for colleges and universities, which sort of have a different function. Or, yeah. Um, But it's similar, like, what is the report card? What is that? Yes, yeah. So, there are different categories. Um, This is from that Gusky book. Researchers who have asked teachers and school leaders these questions generally find that their answers can be classified in six broad categories. And those categories are, so, the purpose of grading and reporting. One, to communicate information about students' achievement in school to parents and others. Fair, right? Yeah. Two, to provide information to students for self-evaluation, right? So one is you're communicating how students did. Two, you are communicating to students so they can evaluate themselves, like change um, their performances. Three, to select, identify, or group students for certain educational paths or programs. Why are we giving students grades? It's so they know that they can go on to college. Something like that. So once again, that is the traditional way of why we want to offer report cards, is help students 
decide where to go. Right. Uh, four, to provide incentives for students to learn. Although many educators debate the idea, extensive evidence shows that grades and other reporting tools are important factors in determining the amount of effort students put forth and how seriously they regard learning or assessment tasks. I mean, I mm. believe this is a, a problematic one, right? You don't want yeah. your students to only show up to your class because they want to get an A. You want them to have many other incentives for learning because, frankly, right. learning is practice for the real world. And in the real world, you don't get graded, right? So you yeah. want to instill skills in your students to learning skills and education skills that they want to continue to achieve whether or not they're graded, getting graded. Um so I'm reading this list and I'm offering my judgments as I read. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, you're welcome. Five, to evaluate the effectiveness of instructional programs. To comparisons mm. of grades and other reporting evidence are frequently used to judge the value and effectiveness of new programs, curriculums, and instructional strategies. Mm. How good is this teacher? I mean, we could talk about grade inflation later on. If this teacher is out giving everyone A's, is it because their, their students are amazing or is it because that teacher is lenient? You have to trust your teachers, too, in my opinion. All right. And six, yeah. <laughs> um, to provide evidence of students' lack of effort or inappropriate responsibility. Grades and other reporting devices are also used to document the inappropriate behaviors of students. Mm. So when educators don't agree on the primary purpose of grades, they often try to address all the purposes with a single reporting device and end up achieving none very well. So that's why it's important to choose a purpose. Find out why you are teaching. Why are you grading? Why? What's your purpose? Right. So this, I'm not going to give you answers. This book is just helping you reform your grading, right? <laughs> right, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so in my opinion, it should be, if you're grading someone, it shouldn't just be, I feel like it should be the student, right? You should be offering grades to the student so they can learn from how they're doing. Yeah. I mean, in college, grades are very much for students. They aren't for parents. Right. Yeah, I f I have like feelings about because the grading system. Obviously, this varies from university to university, but like especially down here in Florida, we have a statewide uh, scholarship program that I Bright Futures uh, grades are so often for so many people tied directly to the financial ability to continue to attend the college, and I don't think that is a condition that anyone can learn under. Yeah. So I have like such strong feelings about the way grades are tied to merit scholarship because like Bright Futures, especially a program like Bright Futures, which isn't a merit-based scholarship, it's a fund that your parents pay into while you're a child. Um, and then you're supposed to just get it back, mm. except that you have to you have to maintain a certain grade point average to get it back. So like Oh, that's um, strange. Yeah, it's not great. So, so, and I especially, and I also like Florida's also a sports school, so we have like a lot of kids on sports scholarships, and they have to maintain a certain grade point average to be able to continue to receive that sports scholarship and play their sports. So, I don't know. I just it, it's like so deeply like it's just it's the way it is structured it, right now is like such an emotional burden. I feel like to students because yeah. it's like. It's for them, and they should be able to t use grades to learn about what they need. But in reality, it's 
just punishment. Like, it's all just punishment. And if you think about it, so, like, if you wanted grade reform, because that's what we're talking about. This is a book about grade reform. Right. The actual learning that your students are doing, that's what's important, right? And all grades are is reporting that to the students or to, apparently, the scholarship board, right? Yeah. And so it gets reduced to a single letter, right, a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't reflect, uh, that doesn't communicate a lot. It communicates very, very little. Um, right. But if you wanted to change that, it's you're still stuck in this tradition of if you wanted to give no grades in your class, you wouldn't be able to do that. You you couldn't. <laughs> yeah. Nope. So uh, a sort of a brief history on I'm going to talk about percentage grades. So Remus touched on this in their section a bit. So what is percentage grades? What is the history of that? Um, So prior to 1850, uh, grading and reporting were virtually unknown in schools in the United States. In the late 1800s, that's sort of when the first narrative report card happened. So narrative report card is when you sort of write down what uh, the skills that students have mastered and what they can work on. So you sort of, a narrative is sort of writing down what what you did in class, and what students can work on. So the first one of those is late 1800s. But then between 1870 and 1910, the amount, number of public schools in the United States increased from 500 to 10,000. And it's because compulsory school attendance laws were developed. They were passed, so mm. everyone had to go to school, so we needed tens of thousands more schools, right? Yeah, yeah. To accommodate all adolescents. So in 1912, again, that era that Remus was talking about, uh, there was a study that two uh, Wisconsin researchers did to uh, challenge uh, the reliability of percentage grades. Mm. And so what they did is that they showed high school English teachers uh, different school assignments. Okay. Um, So they showed 147 teachers two identical papers from students and there was such a huge range they the, it ranged from 64 to 98 right there was a big range in uh how the the teachers had graded what was supposed to have a standard right, right. there was supposed to be a standard grade for this but there was just like a very large range of like uh some teachers gave it a failing grade of 15% and some gave them a grade over 90, right? Depending on if they were grading L- grammar and style and neatness and punctuation, um, while besides what the message is, like there's so many things to grade in that. Um, so English teachers were naturally prone to be more subjective in their assessments of student work. And so they did it again um, for uh, math teachers. And there was an even greater variation in the mathematics percentages, right? They graded from a range of 28 to 95 because some teachers were grading on what was correct. Some teachers were grading on partial credit for the work, like how neat the paper was. Like there's so many things happening. So even in math, there was an even greater subjectivity to its, to these like sort of random grades. These random percentage grades, like you get a 68, you get a 70, right? Yeah. So these demonstrations of wide variation in grading practices among teachers led to a gradual move away from percentage grades to scales that had fewer and larger categories. One was a three-point scale that employed the categories of excellent, 
average, and poor. Another was sort of excellent, good, average, poor, and failing, A, B, C, D, F. Mm. Um, this reduction in the number of score categories served to reduce the variation in grades and led to greater consistency across the grades teachers assigned to students' work. Because, like, so think about it. It's easy to get a paper and you sort of feel bad for the student. You think they wrote that those numbers、uh, so much more neatly. So instead of a 65, you give them a 69 or whatever, right?、Mm -hmm. You kind of scooch it up a little bit. But it's easy to sort of, whether something is average or poor, it's, it's easier to be like, well, no, they didn't answer these correctly versus、um, they answered、uh, plenty correctly. It's just average, right? right? So it's easier to see the difference between that rather than if there's a larger range of choices, it's harder to sort of differentiate. It's harder to have. A clear message, right?、Mm -hmm. But there was a modern resurgence in the 1980s when computer grading software and online grade books began to become more popular. These programs were developed primarily by computer technicians and software engineers rather than educators, and so they incorporated scales that appeal to technicians, <laughs> specifically percentages. <laughs> So we had moved away from it, but now we're just stuck with computer technicians and what they enjoyed, which was numbers. <laughs> so now we're back in percentages. So here it is. Here's the 100 point percentage scales that Remus was talking about. That 100、yeah. point percentage scale, right? Averages was 50, it was right in the middle. So most grades were between 75 and 25, right? It was rare to have grades higher than 75. It was rare to have grades under 25.、Mm. Most modern applications of percentage grades, however, set the average at 75,、right. which translates to a letter grade of C and establish a minimum threshold for passing around 60 to 65. This dramatically increases the likelihood of a negatively skewed grade that is heavily gamed against the student.、Mm. Right? So, if you look at it, there's a really good scale. I'm going to see if I can explain it. So, the typical grade letter scale, you're passing A, B, C, and D, and you're failing at F, right?、Mm -hmm. But in a hundred, in a percentage grade scale, in our new modern application of it, you're passing at 100, 90, 80, and 70, and then between 0 and 60, So, you're passing for 40% of the grade, but you're failing for 60%, right? So, there's a much huger part of that scale in which you're failing、yeah. than the letter grade one, where、um, you're only, what is it? What is five? 20%. You're only failing at, for 20% of that scale. That's so wild. So, here's a question.、Uh, Why do we need such specific distinction for the many different increments in which students are failing? Yeah. <laughs> Why do we need to have a differentiation between students who are failing at 20% versus students who are failing at 40%? That is such a negative way of thinking about students. <laughs> I, I mean, Is it necessary to distinguish this many levels of failure? Is it helpful for students? And why are we teaching? Why are we grading? The purpose is to help students, right? That、yeah. should be clearly your purpose. So, percentage grades are nonsense. I, I, I want to read this because I think it's so funny. Should the focus of educators be to determine more minutely different levels of failure than those of learning success? <laughs> and what does that communicate to students? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's、um, wild. 
So the increased precision of percentage grades is truly far more imaginary than real, right? Like I said, it's easier to mix up an 85% and with a 90% versus mixing up the word satisfactory with excellent work, right? Yeah. So it's actually much more precise to have, I believe he says later on, like four to five grades and none of this in-between stuff. He even sort of talks about how like plus and minus is also not as helpful or good. Just a little bit more, and then I'm going to talk about grading uh, for the arts. Yeah. So challenging single grades. So that means just an A in a class. What does that mean? Right. Right. And sort of the source of that problem is that grades are, uh, there's so many different sources for grades. Um, He has like this huge list. I'll just read a few. Major exams, compositions, class quizzes, uh, classroom observation, daily classwork, effort, attendance, work habits, class participation, progress made, class behavior, attitude, punctuality, oral presentations, homework quality, homework completion, right? It list goes on and on and on. Right. So usually, so grading is just a hodgepodge of whatever it is that teacher chooses to grade. Right. This reporting format compels st- teachers to merge scores from major assignments, all this different stuff. Mm-hmm. So it includes... Uh, quizzes, projects, and reports, along with evidence from homework, punctuality, class participation, work habits and efforts, right? So you're combining what the work is versus um, who the student is, right? So he sort of has a sample at the beginning of, um, there's these two students, He has uh, his examples are Marie and Robert. Uh, Marie is exceptionally bright, in his words, but negligent. She gets high grades on on assessments, on quizzes, but her homework is always late. Um, she comes to school late. Mm. Um, she has lack, lack of punctuality, and so she gets C's, right? Okay. And then Robert is really dedicated and hardworking. Um, he does every homework assignment, shows up in class, gets extra credit. However, he has doesn't do well on quizzes and assessments, and he also gets a C. Mm. So it just doesn't communicate who that student is and what they're learning, right? Right. So there's sort of these... Three different criteria that you can grade on. Um, there's the product criteria, right, which are favored by advocates of standard-based or performance-based approaches to teaching and learning. They emphasize that the primary purpose of grading is to communicate a, summate, a summative evaluation of student achievement, what students know and are able to do at a particular point in time. And so it's examination, final products, overall assessments, culminating demonstrations of learning. This is the product criteria. Gotcha. So if you think about this in terms of visual arts education, right? Yeah. How good is that painting at the end? Yeah. Process criteria, number two, are emphasized by educators who believe that product criteria do not provide a complete picture of student learning. So teachers who uh, consider responsibility, effort, or work habits when assigning grades are using process criteria, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about this in terms of visual arts education, it's how dedicated were they during that painting, right? How uh, much did they come to class? They worked hard on that painting. They really demonstrated dedication to that. Uh, They had a lot of effort. Um, They overcame problems with that painting. So whether the painting is good at the end is less significant. Right. You can see I'm sort of biased towards this. Because <laughs> Me too. Yeah, yeah, Because <laughs> <laughs> those are the habits that you want your want students in the world. You want all humans to have 
to practice dedication, to practice effort, whether or not the final product is high achieving or not. And because, frankly, that is subjective, right? And then progress criteria are used by... So the, so the third one, product criteria, second pro- process, and the last one is progress, are used by educators who believe that the most important aspect of grading is how much students gain from their learning experience. Mm. Other names for the progress criteria include learning gain, improvement scoring, value-added learning, and education growth. So it's, a f- it's they measure backward from the final performance or standard or goal, and growth is measured. Mm. So who was that student at the beginning of your class, and who are they at the end, and how much did they change, Right. And this could also be useful for visual, visual arts education in seeing that beginning sketchbook and seeing what their final products can look like and measuring that growth. Because you could have that same sort of arc of growth for someone who starts out very skilled technically and they um, can grow and d- make new discoveries um, at the same rate that someone else is growing and making new discoveries, right? Yeah, so I'm going to step away from the Gusky book and sort of talk a little bit more about uh, visual arts. Do you have any questions on that, Remus? No, I'm just... It's just really, like, interesting and relevant to, like, the way I teach also, so I'm just thinking about that. What are you thinking about? Oh, like, the... the, Especially sort of... I always start off my classes now with, like, a lecture on... I don't use the word product, I use the word outcome... Which mm-hmm. I, I mean product, because a lot of times the way the writing stru- classes are structured in my university are very like, here's a checklist of the things that you put into the assignment. If you hit all those check marks, you did good um, without any actual like thought about what it means to become a good writer or like what like healthy writing practices are. Mm-hmm. So we always have a really big talk about outcome versus process and like how to grade for process um, in my classes. Perfect. I mean, it seems like what all teachers need to do at the very beginning is figure out what their goals are, right? Yeah. Figuring out what the purpose of your class is and then how you would assess that purpose, right? So if your purpose is that you want students to develop a healthy writing habit, then that involves more process, right? Yeah. Rather than product, right? Yeah. Because they could easily write an amazing essay staying up all night the night before which yeah, is not yeah. a healthy writing not healthy for them concept. yeah and i try because they're college aged um so i can kind of do this it is a it's a more collaborative way of like assessing our goals like cool. i over the summer the rubric i used like was actually like i had them annotate our syllabus and figure out what the objectives were and then tell me what they wanted and then like we built the rubric from that so like yeah and i feel like that is easily adaptable to younger grades right what do you what do you feel like an art classroom should teach you right which you know it's great to have student student focused learning right have student input but of course you're the adult and so you might know some other things that you want them to learn but because they haven't taken second grade art before you know (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah. it's like i I took all their stuff and then i i wrote the rubric but it was all based on like the conversation we had together awesome so i actually want to move into developing your own arts rubric yeah so for arts you sort of need standards right well yeah you i don't you can you need nothing (laughs) (laughs) um you may do whatever you please however being able to sort of define what it is that you want your art students to produce 
is going to help you uh, define your grading. Right. It's a lot harder. It's just like, let's pull back a little bit. And let's say you have are given uh, 15 paintings by fifth graders and all you are you don't know the fifth graders you don't know anything about it you are just given 15 paintings and you say give them an a b c d or f i i actually i find that idea very disturbing right right i find it very very disturbing to only be product oriented or even be product oriented at all in an arts classroom yeah so Thinking about what the goals are for why we are teaching art, I think, um, is very, very important before you even set foot in the classroom. Uh, this is These are things that we've talked about a lot in Drawing a Dialogue in my segment, um, just like why we are teaching art to students and why it's really important. But one way you can start with a rubric is... Um, you can go for the National Visual Arts Standards, which we've talked about previously. They were put together by the State Education Agency, Directors of Art Education, yeah. on behalf of um, the NCCAS, uh, the National Coalition for Core Arts Standards, okay. the National Art Education Association, so the NAEA. I talked about, I used to talk about the National Visual Arts Standards um, a lot at the beginning. Um, because they are very, very helpful if you're trying to reset or start from scratch these standards, and then you can sort of base them onto what your goals are for your classroom. But I'm going to read out these different standards that the uh, National Art Education Association has come up with. They've come up with four artistic processes that they want students to learn. And those four artistic processes are creating conceiving and developing new artistic ideas or work, presenting, interpreting, and sharing artistic work, responding, understanding, and evaluating how the arts convey meaning, mm. and the fourth is connecting, relating artistic ideas and work with personal meaning and external context. So I love that it acknowledges that there's more to art than simply creating. There's also presenting to others, connecting with others, and responding to artwork, right? All critical thinking. So each one of these processes have their own standards within them. So the anchor standard under creating is generate and conceptualize artwork and ideas, mm. uh, organize and develop artistic ideas and work, and refine and complete artistic work. So come up with ideas, creating it, and completing it. Okay. And then there are, for the artistic pro process of presenting... There are standards of select, analyze, and interpret artistic work for presentation, develop and refine artistic techniques and work for presentation, and then convey meaning through the presentation of artistic work. Mm. So um, what is an art museum? How does presenting something on a pedestal change it from presenting it in a home or in a yard, right? Mm. So sort of talking about... Um, selecting artwork, analyzing it, and sharing it, and how that can add to an artistic product. I thought E would like that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like oh, steepling my fingers over here. <laughs> like, <laughs> indeed, indeed. And then this actual, uh, this National Visual Arts Standards, they talk about these standards for every grade, pre-K to 12th grade. It's really helpful to think about that, right? What could presentation be to a kindergartner, right? 
a kindergartner can explain what an art museum is and how it can distinguish between an art museum and other buildings, right? Like what is, is an art museum? So versus something like in the 12th grade, advanced, you would curate a collection of artifacts and artwork to impact the viewer's understanding and create new social and cultural political experiences, right? Wow. <laughs> but, you, <laughs> but you can build off of that. Right. With yes. these standards, if everyone has these standards, they are building, you're going to be getting students who are able to build off of previous understandings. Right. Cause so like right. this summer I had middle schoolers and we ha uh, only very few of them have been to an art museum. They don't know what's mm -hmm. in an art museum. Right. Yeah. And so that's because there's many art educators um, who aren't using these standards, who aren't, maybe they haven't even taken art classes, frankly. So not that I need to, I don't believe that everyone needs to be using these standards because like standardization, I feel like, um, isn't terribly student centered. Um, right. Yeah. But I do think that there's a lot of value in actually evaluating why students are learning something and what you should be teaching them. Right. Yeah. Figuring out the purpose. That kind of goes back to that idea of just having like a, a, like a learning community, right? Like a shared body of yes. knowledge to talk about a thing. And I think it's easy for us to, I took it a pause on talking about these anchor standards. And I think it's e it's important for us to talk about, I'm talking about art, he's talking about English, because that is simply what we are teaching currently. Yes. Um, however, I actually think there's almost more value for things like science and math mm. to be thinking about what, why they're teaching what they're teaching. Because it's not actually inherent that math is important. I know that might be shocking to math teachers out there. <laughs> so I actually think it's really, really, really important to define purpose right. behind your class, behind your grades, um, no matter who you are and what you're teaching. What it is that you want from your students. <laughs> and I feel like there needs to be larger ideas and larger concepts of why we are teaching something. Because otherwise it's, it's easy enough for a student to say, I'm not going to be a scientist. I don't want to learn science. Right. I'm not right. going to be an artist. I don't want to learn art. Right. But we know as teachers, we know that there's reasons why we want students to have a, this sort of foundational educational experience. All right. So back to standards um, on the National Visual Arts Standards. Um, so in the process of responding, there's three standards. One is perceive and analyze artistic work. Two is interpret intent and meaning in artistic work. And three is apply criteria and evaluate artistic work. So interpretation. Um, so perceiving, analyzing, and interpreting artwork. So be having an artist mind, thinking, appreciating art, critical thinking. And then the fourth uh, process is connecting. So Two anchor standards for this one is synthesizing and relating knowledge and personal experiences to make art. And the second one is relate artistic ideas and works with societal, cultural, and historical context to deepen understanding. I feel like this standard is like very, very important to me, like considering why what art is, what the meaning is being conveyed, yeah. why is important in a culture. Um, I think that this is the standard and this is the process by which a lot of drawing a dialogue educational segments are about is like, how can we talk about racism? How can we talk about carcerality, masculinity, all these things? 
through the lens of art and art pedagogy. So I believe the standard is very important um, to mm. art education. Of course, it's one in like, it's like the bottom one on this huge poster. So you see how I'm not like fully endorsing this poster. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> um, I figured I would throw in some other books, other perspectives of um, comics teachers, right? Right. So I can talk about, I'm going to just reference a syllabus by Linda Berry. Mm. She is teaching a, a college level course. Um, which is key because university teachers can basically have any rubric and they can do anything that they want. Yeah, um, sort of. <laughs> um, so her grades, she's got one sheet of paper on her, one sh- one side of her syllabus talking about grades. Um, she says uh, for her comics drawing class, as your final grade will be based on attendance and punctuality, class participation, content and use of composition notebooks, because she has all her students drawing in basically a sketchbook, right? She uses composition yeah. notebooks. Timely completion of weekly assignments and a final project. To get an A, so she talked to, this is a rubric. She tells you how to get an A. To get an A, you must not only spend more time on assignments and demonstrate active engagement with the work, you must also find something original during the course of the assignment of the semester. And this is great. This is th- encouraging original thinking. What is art for other than creating new ideas, right? Right. Those who do the minimum amount of work required will get a C. Those who spend more time on assignments and demonstrate engagement with work will get a B. She grades individual assignments with a check minus, check, and check plus rather than letter grades. Mm. So she doesn't share how she adds those check, check minuses, and check pluses, uh, whether they translate to a percentage grade. I feel like they are actually another way of doing ABC, something like that, or a percentage grade, how many points. It's like awarding points, right? Right, yeah. But it seems like her grading is so much more about who you are in her classroom rather than um, how talented you are, et cetera, right. et cetera. Like she's not grading on technical skill, which is, um, to me, I think that's very, very valuable. Um, but that's not necessarily true, especially in art school, right? Right. They might be solely grading on technical ability because that's the values that they, they that's, that's the purpose of what their classroom is. Their goal is for you to develop as a technical person. Her goal is for you to develop as an ideation um, process oriented person. Right. So I have a new book. I was really excited about this one. I just ordered it. It just came out called Lessons Drawn. Essays on the Pedagogy of Comics and Graphic Novels, edited by David D. Silo. It's just mm. this came out. I'm going to reference from an essay. Saving the World, One Class at a Time, Teaching Superhero Comics um, by David D. Silo. So this is David's book, and this is David's essay within the book. Okay. So in this section, Silo sets out the goals. By the conclusion of this course, you should be able to, one, analyze the relationship between words and images, two, produce an original comic book, three, work as a part of a team to solve problems and create artifacts, four, describe the key elements of a superhero genre, five, outline the history of the superhero genre, and six, explain how superhero characters represent the changing values of American society. So these are the objectives that CeeLo has for his class. Um, how he gives grades, however, I find uh, very interesting, right? So it's this section is titled A Gameful Classroom. I've long been a proponent of game-based learning, and no subject is better suited to a game-based classroom than comics. 
Many of my ideas are adapted from my friend Lee Sheldon's pioneering work on game-based learning in the multiplayer classroom from 2011. Game-based learning offers a range of interventions or design strategies from a fully immersive experience such as Lee's own classes in small experiments where professors and teachers use game layers or game elements in the classroom. Here, I will address three game-based strategies I've employed for grading, teamwork, and assignment framing. So um, what he does is he uses experience points to grade. So using this method, students begin the semester with a zero experience points, XP. In traditional schemes, the zero is an F. However, the moment they set foot in the classroom, they begin to earn points. Attendance earn points, as well as participation assignments and so forth. In other words, students as players move upward and onward from each class from zero to whatever maximum number of points is. Huh. Um... (laughs) (laughs) Um, assignments should be calibrated to match the number of points to the difficulty of the assignment a one page paper might earn 10 XP and a major research paper or project earn 100 or even 200 grade weighting is inherent to XP and requires no programming for simplicity's sake I like working with a 10 base so students can earn 1500 XP in my course but many variation and nuance is possible. The use of a game based framework and language for assignments also contributes to the more immersive and more positive student learning experience. Um, The advantage of such language should be obvious. Do you think students preferred a challenge or a quiz? Write another blasted research paper or go on a quest to solve a mystery. (laughs) Have fun or toil. (laughs) So it's like a way to positively reframe a class, right? Right, yeah. Um, I think if you import this onto the grading framework that I had previously been talking about, I think it's still too large, right? (laughs) Yeah. Because um, if you turn, if, if, if a research paper is 100, then you have a grading scale between 0 and 100. And as we have established before, that is too large of a grading scale in order to have um, be more specificity. But um, I think that's fun. <laughs> so that is one uh, comic teacher in addition to Linda Berry. And then I figured I would give you my own rubric for a high school comics class. Yeah. Uh, from my own uh, experience. So uh, define my goals. Um, One, introduce methods and materials to create original comic book stories. Mm -hmm. Two, develop, write, draw, and publish complete comic book stories to then present to an audience. Uh, Three, create connections with personal meaning and external context. And four, Find comfort in personal creation and appreciate the significance of contributing to the collective visual culture. So the if you want to sort of think about what those goals are, the first one is I'm sort of defining that in this class, I'm going to show you methods and techniques of drawing a comic book, right? Mm. I'm going to show you how to sketch, how to ink, all that stuff. Right, yeah. That's number one. Sort of the material gains. So two is I'm going to show you how to develop, write, draw, and publish a complete story to then give to an audience. So I'm going to show you how to come up with ideas for a story, write it, draw it, 
and then publish it because I think that sharing of art is really key to me. That is what art is, is sort of sharing and communicating to other people in a new way, right? I feel like that is key for me as an art teacher. That is what I want students to practice is sharing their artwork. And then three is uh, create connections with personal meeting and external context. So that is really evaluating that uh, final standard that we talked about in national standards. So how can uh, you relate artistic ideas to work with a society, culture, and historical context. As you imagine, in drawing a dialogue, historical contexts are very important to me. And so I sort of value how you as a human can create personal meaning, but also how that is affected by your context, um, I think is like really, really, really important ideas. Just one example is thinking about a racist caricature and that history in comics and how your drawings are influenced by that history uh, is just one example of what I'm talking about, how your personal meaning and external context can either relate or conflict. And we talked about that in an old Drawing a Dialogue episode. So also, the four is find comfort in personal creation and appreciate the significance of contributing to the collective visual culture. And that is coming from my own experience as a art teacher with adolescence in that, and uh, this is probably true for adults as well, not elementary, in which uh, in adolescence around that point is when students decide whether they are artists or whether they are not artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what I'm really, really valuing, if it's one of my four goals, right, is to have students empower themselves with communicating, with creating art. You are always contributing to visual culture and how that is important. That is something that I want all my students to uh, achieve in my classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, And then my actual grading rubric is so I have in class, I have weekly sketchbook exercises and I have readings. And then I have three assignments that I grade cartooning language, narrative, and tools and media approaches. And then four, I have a final project, right? Okay. So I have excellent competitive needs work. So I have three categories. And so excellent is A, B, competitive B, C, needs work is C, D. So uh, for excellent, um, you develop your own cartooning language. Um, in weekly sketchbook exercises. So what I say is you don't complete the sketchbook exercises because I'm not trying to say all I need you to do is complete something. I'm right. trying to, I'm actually sharing what the standard, the goal in that rubric. I think that's the key difference is me trying to say, I want you to develop a cartooning language that's yours when you do these weekly sketchbook assignments. Right. It wouldn't be valuable to me to just say, complete these assignments, because that it doesn't actually communicate why. Why is this important? And I think it's really, really, really important that we actually communicate to students why we want them to achieve something. Right. I could go on, but um, like I want students in the narrative, um, in order to be excellent, um, they have to, in order to basically get an A, they need to create original and engaging narrative. So if it needs work, it's an ineffective material. There is, it is an ineffective narrative. Right. Um, and again, all of this is subjective. It sounds subjective. It is creating almost a false, I don't know. It's almost, it's trying to create numbers for something that is ultimately subjective, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that's true for all learning experiences because it's really important that we actually are student centered and actually center the students when we're grading. And I'm sort of losing my train. (laughs) No, no, you're right. I I think that's like the, 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 um, 
the thing that I was sort of getting out of that Turley Gallagher article too is that like the the rubrics are important to sort of help establish that language um, so that students know what's expected of them and like what your goals are as an instructor. But your goals as an instructor are going to be subjective. <laughs> so like, yeah, it's not it's not a way of pretending to be objective. It's a way of like acknowledging the subjectivity and like letting people know where you're at. Yeah, and I think the value is when you hand out grades, you give a narration narrative, right? You write why they received that grade, and then you welcome talking about it, right? Yeah. yeah. Because you want students, so what is your purpose of grading? For me, it's I want students to be communicated to. So if my communication is only a C and I don't communicate why they received that C and if I don't offer more standards other than just the letter grade, that's not doing a very good job of my goal of communicating to students. And that's it. That's my section. That was lovely. Thank you. And thank you for being willing to share your own rubric with us, too. You're welcome. I those are just a couple examples, but Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think so now it's time to sort of talk about conclusions of, in drawing a dialogue. So this is our conclusion section. Uh what did we learn? What are our goals? What do I want our takeaways to be? So I think what I want to talk about is there isn't a standard for comics yeah. classes. <laughs> right. Right. So these are ones I actually when I was in school, I tried to um, communicate with other comic art teachers. And I didn't receive rubrics that I found very satisfying. And so this is a rubric I developed myself um, based on my goals. So I think I encourage you to think about what your goals are. Um, So part of a conclusion is also I've been teaching a lot of workshops and camps et cetera, et cetera, that actually don't grade. Yeah. But I still think that it's valuable to have goals and values for that classroom, right? What are, why are you in that classroom with this group of students? Why are you all together? And so I had, I have laid out, and it's going to be a future comic art ed post, but I laid out my values for a comic art ed comics camp. And there's five values. These are the things that I want students to get away from my comics class is one teamwork. Mm -hmm. So I want them to learn to collaborate together. Um, So in a comics class, I want them to be goofy because the stakes of projects are low. They aren't getting graded. Um, I just want them to have fun. So I want them to practice those important teamwork skills with each other. Two, it's really important. I put all artistic values on ideas, 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 ideas. I don't want students to come up with a Batman story, right? right? I want them to come up with new, interesting, fun ideas because I think that is like a valuable skill. Um, if we were talking about the future, if we're talking about um, this world of modern technology, I think having being a critical and original thinker, I think is a very valuable skill. So I value skills, ideas. I value fun. Number three is fun. Yeah. Because if we are grading and if we're just having a summer afternoon together, we may as well make it fun, right? Comics are fun. Yeah. Having a sense of humor is good. <laughs> Being lighthearted is important. Um, so fun is important. For my fourth value is literacy. I just want everyone to be practicing literacy all the time. I think that um, literacy skills are unbelievably important to raising smart, thoughtful, critical, and explorative youth. I think it offers freedom. Um, So I think literacy is super important. And then number five is ownership. 
I want kids and students to have ownership over the comic making process, ownership over their own creativity, ownership over themselves as a human being, as an artistic producing, thoughtful, awesome person. So ownership. So my five values for a comics camp is teamwork, ideas, fun, literacy, and ownership. You notice drawing skills is not on that list. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll help you draw if you want help, but those are the actual values that I'm trying to instill in a workshop. Awesome. Thanks. Do you have any conclusions? No. <laughs> no? I mean, no. It's this is such I, you this is such an interesting topic for me still because the reason we started this is because I was like I hate rubrics and grading and you very convinced me into rubrics and I'm more a fan of rubrics <laughs> now but I still think grading is fundamentally evil so I don't really have a conclusion <laughs> is it like I'm incredibly distrustful of grading <laughs> like I mean, I do my the majority of my educational experience is non graded experience, right? Yeah. After school, community centers, all that stuff is supplemental education. Like if you so if you go back and listen to my interview with Priscilla, right, talking about those art drop in centers for youth, that is talking about creativity in ways that offer full ownership because you aren't being judged, right? Yes. It's just, yeah, yeah, I just, I think maybe it's an evil practice (laughs) and I work very hard to find ways to do it under the constraints that I am under as a graduate assistant um, in a more restorative way. (laughs) And you are a museum, you're like doing museum education too. And museum education is also non-graded. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, so. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's interesting. So I almost like for me, so we had talked about rubrics and what I think is key and what what I had told you is standard-based rubrics are the way to go, right? Right. So by standards is um, these sort of like these big ideas of what you are actually trying to get students to learn, right? Right. And it's easy to develop a rubric that's just uh, you answered this mathematical problem correct or not correct. You used proper grammar in this essay or you didn't use proper grammar in this essay. But what that completely ignores is so many other factors and yeah. it's not student-based. It's yeah. not learning-based. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think there's. <laughs> I think that's where I'm coming from with the value but the, it's the value is actually helping teachers and instructors reframe why they're there, yes. right? Yeah. And if you create, if you have standards and you do not grade in, or like, but thinking about class participation, uh, talking about class participation, uh, Remus recently um, tweeted about this, but class participation and the way that teachers evaluate class participation, and if your standard just says, answers questions, raises their hand, you are ignoring uh, the many other ways people can participate in the world, right? You can participate by writing, you can participate by like uh, doing online Mm -hmm. conversations, right? Like there's a lot of ways to participate and you have to figure out that broader definition 
in your rubric, yeah. in your standards, because if you're only grading this one thing, then you are practicing a discriminatory thinking yeah. and you're forcing students to conform to this one thing. So almost like my idea of why rubrics and standard-based education is important is helpful is actually because it forces teachers to be like, oh, this thing I've been grading is discriminatory. Yeah. <laughs> it's arbitrary. Yeah. Yeah. Why do I put yeah. so much value on this? I should redistribute what I value in my classroom. Cool. So ne- our next segment is letters to the editor. Yep. Um, it's our regular segment where we revisit past topics and add new research. And sometimes we actually read your email. Um, so if you want to send us a letter, uh, you can email it to drawingadialogue at gmail.com. Yep. Uh, do you have anything for letters to the editor, Remus? No. Nope, I don't either. Cool. Nothing this time. Both of us, both of us are um, uh, starting out that school <laughs> year, and we are swamped. So, <laughs> so I want to say thank you to Downtown Boys for their song "Wave of History." It's off their album "Full Communism." You get it off their Bandcamp. You can um, find the show notes and the citations for the podcast over on drawingadialogue.com, which is hosted by Comic Art Ed, Kathy's good comic arts education website. Um, Thank you. There's a new post on art classroom comics libraries. So it's how to have a library in your art classroom and why you want to do it and how it's valuable and how to start one. Cool. Um, So you can head over to comicarted.com and see that. Um, You can email us, like Kathy just said, at drawingadialogue at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at ehetja, E-H-E-T-J-A. And you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm both at Kathy G. John, C-A-T-H-Y-G-J-O-H-N. Very cool. What are you reading, Kathy? I have been reading all sorts of stuff, but I've just been reading uh, Jackson's Dilemma, by Iris Murdoch. Oh, I've talked about Iris okay. Murdoch on this podcast before. Um, she's one of my favorite authors. Um, Ada Books, the local bookstore in Providence, has recently uh, closed, which is so sad, but they had all their books for like 50 cents. Um, so I basically got every single Iris Murdoch book that he had. And so I'm just reading Jackson's Dilemma. It's great. If you want, if you like Virginia Woolf, and the sort of modernist sensibility. Mm. It feels so... It's This book, Jackson's Dilemma, is so much like Mrs. Dalloway. Oh, really? Yeah, but she's writing... I believe it's from the 90s. Huh. So it's like more a more contemporary Mrs. Dalloway, um, which is wonderful. So I've been really enjoying it. What are you reading, E? So all I, since school has begun again, um, I'm back to my standard practice of having over a book to read a week. But... So I... <laughs> I put down Giovanni's room, um, which I picked up our the local info shop and like radical organizing space that I help at sometimes. The Civic Media Center um, has been doing like an ongoing book sale because they're getting rid of some of their like older uh, titles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I picked up Giovanni's room because I've wanted to read it forever. Um, I haven't actually started reading it yet, so I think <laughs> I think I put it down on this dock as sort of a like uh, like a, a hopeful promise to myself that I would begin reading it but i haven't yet but i'm gonna say that anyway because maybe this will shame me into actually starting it (laughs) i think i read it a long long time ago it's lovely james baldwin yeah no i love james baldwin i'm teaching gotel on the mountain in two in a week in two weeks something like that i'm teaching gotel on the mountain soon but um giovanni's broom has been on my list for 
ages and I've just never been able to get my hands on a copy. So I'm very excited. <laughs> yeah. So that's been Drawing and Dialogue. Happy school year to all you teachers out there and all you <laughs> and, students out and there. Students. Um, I hope you have a great school year. Thank you so much for listening to Drawing and Dialogue. I've been Kathy G. Johnson. And I am still Remus Johnson. Farewell to our intrepid volunteers. Bye.